love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Ken Ramirez, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast as a teacher and somebody that is in the animal behavior field for well over 40 years. Uh, a lot of our listeners who are professional lifelong learners always looking to improve their practice are really going to benefit from having an actual teacher on the program. Ken is uh, the Chief Training Officer at Karen Pryor Clicker Training Academy, which we'll talk about a little bit too. Um, he was a professor at Western Illinois, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, for, for 20 years, I want to say, in animal training. Yeah, I did a graduate course in training uh, at Western Illinois University while I was living in the Chicago area, yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did. You know, it was a very different uh, uh, thing for me. I, I'm not normally, uh, uh, I didn't love school when I was in school. I did well in it. <laughs> but I don't have a graduate degree. And so it was a very unusual thing for Western to approach me to end up teaching a graduate level course. Uh, but it was a good, it was a good program because it allowed me to use a lot of the animals that I worked with at the aquarium as demonstration animals to help people understand the concepts of, of learning theory and why it works the way it does. And it was part of a greater, bigger program at Western Illinois uh, on zoological studies and helped people understand there were a variety of courses that were offered that helped people interested in the zoological field. Yeah, that makes a huge difference too for people to be able to see and feel and touch that hands-on element is something that you often don't get. I mean, we're totally experiencing that with all of our online virtual seminars right now as, as COVID is spiking, but it's great to have that experience with the aquarium and be able to use that to relate to your students and the people that you're teaching. So I bet that was, that was pretty helpful. How exciting too. You've worked with lots of different species and I'm very curious to hear about how you apply what you know with all of these different species to your learning theory with canines. I mean, um, the majority of our, our listeners are canine focused, but I do think there's a lot to be said about working with other species and how you can learn from them. So chimpanzees, I read even butterflies you've worked with. So what's kind of your overall philosophy with all of these different animals and these different species and in, in learning and theory with that? Well, I think one of the things that has really helped me a lot is the fact that I have worked in a zoological environment and have worked with a huge diversity of species because you begin to realize that while you hear all the time that the theory is the same, that learning is learning and that it applies across all species, which it absolutely does, but there are unique things about working with a horse, for example, that you will never learn while working with a dog. There are unique things about working with a dog that you will not learn when you're working with a bird. And so as you begin expanding the species that you work with, I tend to find that there are new things that you learn or these obscure parts of the learning theory that you don't delve into that often, you find yourself going, oh, this is really helpful when working with this particular species. And what I mean by that, for example, is I was raised or learned to train in a practical environment. I, I, I came to the theoretical knowledge and the science of training much later in my career. So I was first a hands-on trainer. And uh, and I remember when I was first working with a, a, a variety of snake species, uh, and I was realizing oh. that there were so much of what they learned was really learned 
in a from a classical perspective a lot of the learning that was taking place was was very directly tied to uh this subconscious learning this instinctive learning that takes place and that was not something i had regularly been exposed to early in my career uh it it opened up the value and the importance of that other branch of learning that i hadn't been as exposed to early in my career you know as you learn about the way animals learn, and you hear about operant conditioning and classical conditioning, um, we are often taught about those two different learning methods as being very, very separate things. But the more you begin working with them, you begin to realize how closely interconnected they are. But early in my career, I had really only been taught operant conditioning, and this is the way animals learn. But then when you're exposed to animals that are, are driven in by a lot of instinct and that are that a lot of their learning is happening on another level suddenly that opened up that other spectrum of of learning that I just hadn't been exposed to early in my career now many years later I I realized that I was learning about classical conditioning all along I just wasn't aware that that's what it was I I, I as I said I came to the science and theoretical aspect of training much later in my career. Um, and so I, 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 I began filling in the holes to all my practical training that, that, that was never filled in because I didn't have that formal education uh, early on. And I feel like until you really get into it and you're able to apply what you know to experiences, that world really just doesn't open up for you. Until you're able to actually apply that in practice, you really just don't know. But it's interesting you mentioned bringing up kind of that primitive brain, you know, that it's it's very different teaching specific patterns and what you, you're talking about with opera and classical conditioning that X equals Y equals Z, you know, one point to the next point to the next point, whereas where you have an animal that's a little bit more um, cognitively advanced and you have different levels of thinking and thought processes that go on and it's not just all instinctive, you're, you're talking multiple different levels of, of going in and out of things that are instinctual, you know, even for animals that are fearful or have that fight flight response that's really um, kind of deep rooted and subconscious. And then you have the animals that are, that are using that, that um, learning process very consciously, you know, to connect the dots, so to speak, or to learn around the patterns and things like that. So it's really interesting. And the, um, what are your what are your thoughts on working with, um, and do you see a lot of differences or a lot of similarities or both in working with prey animals versus predatory animals in particular? I, I see a lot of similarities because I, I, I think I've been trained to look for them. I, 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 I always go back to um, those techniques that you're most comfortable using, that I'm most comfortable using. I tend to try to apply them across all species. And so I, I tend to find very quickly the similarities. I think um, the differences between them are are more in. I guess it's 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 often. I I've recently done a lot of work with talking about shy and skittish animals and working with animals that are fearful. And in many cases, when you're working with a prey species, they they tend to be the shy and skittish type, and really. It's about bringing them to that point of trusting you and being willing to um, eat from you and approach you and interact with you. That is the most important part of where you start training. You know, often if you if you're working with a dog who does not have a 
a negative history, has never been in a shelter, and they, they tend to be very gre uh, gregarious animals. They come right over to you. They're ready to play with you. They're ready to eat from you. And, and a lot of times we forget as trainers that a lot of animals don't come ready to start interacting with people. You go to a shelter, for example, and that animal you don't know what its history is. It may be very shy and retiring. It may not want to come over and play with you. It may not want to come over and take food from you. And you find that to be true of a lot of the prey species, but also with exotic animals, there's a big distrust that happens. And so assuming that you can go in and start working with an animal who's going to bounce right up to you and say, feed me, I'm ready to start training, just isn't the case. And 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 we often forget that the very first place you have to start with some animals is gaining that trust and getting them to eat from you. And, and I often find that a lot of trainers forget that eating is the first behavior that you really kind of need from your animal if you're going to start training it. And, and people forget that and, and don't think about that. And so that is what really has come to me from so many years of working with prey species from working with animals that are afraid of people uh, and it translates to the to the canine world particularly with the the fearful dogs that you can find in a shelter situation sometimes they they start in that very fearful place and just getting them to trust you often takes a lot of time so there are a lot of overlaps and correlations between all of the different species that I've worked with yeah, the one species I'll say that needs to be removed from the equation when you're thinking about how to handle these animals is the human species. I mean, oftentimes we're talking about fearful dogs in shelters. The approach is, I so badly want this dog to trust me and to love me and to be my friend that we think about that from our perspective and what our wants and desires are versus what can I do to make this animal feel more comfortable to be able to eat in my presence, like you mentioned, or even play. You know, it's very difficult to play when you're you're feeling very stressed. So getting an animal out of that shell to where they'll, they'll play is, is a huge difference. But I feel like anthropomorphism plays such a huge role in how humans handle um, uh, fearful animals, species to species, whether they're predatory or prey animals. I feel like it's almost kind of the same. I want them to trust me. I want them, you know, to feel safe. Yeah, I, I agree. It certainly complicate things. <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes what happens is we we put all these different names uh, or labels on, on animals when we talk about them being shy or fearful or aggressive or whatever. And as I started really examining why we put those different labels on animals, um, I feel like oftentimes it's our perspective that we put on it. For example, uh, the difference might be when you're dealing with a, a very shy animal, we think of it as an animal that is afraid of us. We're not worried about our own safety as much as we are about the fact that it doesn't trust us, that we label it as aggressive when it starts wanting to bite us. But that's just more a more assertive animal who probably has the same level of fear as the animal we label as shy. Uh, it's just that they manifest itself in a different way. One runs away from you and one wants to attack you, but they're both afraid of you. you you're, just, you're just looking at a difference in their perspective as to how they behave when they're afraid. And we have our own view of it, but I, I often think that many of the animals that, that people work with are shy, skittish, afraid, fearful, um, and that's what causes a lot of the misbehavior. What we call misbehavior is simply because of uh, not understanding their needs and not being able to help them get more comfortable around people.
Yeah, and I think from the veterinary professional community in particular, it's important to educate owners about this. If they come into the clinics or the hospitals and they're you know, describing the animal's behavior, whether it's a, a feline or a canine, often people are trying to force them into something, force them into liking something, force them into doing something. You know, We see flooding happen in, in, with that type of methodology, but for owners that don't know, I think it's really important that veterinary staff in particular, you know, really kind of shout it to the mountaintops, you can't fix fear with fear. You, know, you have to take your time and provide those resources for people to be able to, to work with their pets and kind of come out of that shell and build some of that trust at home and in the vet hospital, of course. So um, I would love to talk to you a little bit about methodology too. So um, you're definitely a part of the clicker training uh, uh, program with Karen Pryor. You teach with Karen Pryor Academy and um, I love clicker training. I'm not as um, well versed in it because I'm used to using my voice as a clicker and you know my yeses and goods and I'm clumsy so I don't finagle with the treats and everything else as well. But um, I would love to hear about why clicker training and talk to me a little bit about your methodology, why you're really behind um, the use of clickers in all types of animal training and kind of what your philosophy is with that. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of approaches that we could take on talking about this, Sarah. I think, first of all, I'm as much as I am by all, definitely a positive reinforcement trainer, and I'm a very big proponent of use of some kind of a marker to mark behavior, I am not necessarily one who says, you absolutely must use a clicker. Uh, I always remind people that the clicker is nothing but a little toy that makes noise. And, and there's nothing magical about the clicker itself. What the clicker does is it informs the animal it lets an animal know when it has done something correct you you pair the clicker with food or some other highly reinforcing activity and the animal comes to learn oh click means good click means good things happen and so when you're training that click gives you the opportunity to precisely let an animal know that moment that you are reinforcing that moment that is good and so Many of the animals I work with have five, six, seven different markers that I use. I like for animals to have a visual marker. I like them to have an audible marker. I like them to have a tactile marker. And that allows me to let the animal know that they've done well in many different conditions. Uh, I understand why some people don't want to use a clicker because it occupies a hand. It can be difficult. It can, you, it can be clumsy. The nice thing about the clicker is that it's usually unique to the environment. Um, one of the challenges with verbal markers, I use them all the time, but the problem is if I end up talking to my animal all the time and I'm inserting mm -hmm. a word in there, it can get lost in the shuffle. And so it, it, it doesn't stand out and have as much of a meaning. It's very easy to train without a clicker you know the, the the primary important part of positive reinforcement is delivering that positive reinforcement and if you're able to deliver your food your toy or whatever the reinforcer is in a timely way you can manage wonderfully without ever using a marker but the marker is very very valuable because in nature animals depend on markers uh not clickers, but when when a a, a lion is 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 pursuing its prey, uh, it's looking for those signs that it's making progress or that it's that it's that it's that it's on its mark, and it learns how to interpret cracking of a tree limb, the moving of a brush, 
uh, of the brush in the distance, they, they learn to recognize those signs in the environment that something is happening, that something is successful, that something is scary. And all that we're doing is since the animals are looking for that sign that they've achieved something, uh, we just go ahead and suggest give it to them. They're going to be looking for something anyway. And often when I meet trainers that say, oh, I don't believe in markers and I don't use them, when you watch them, their animals are paying attention and they step forward and the animal perceives that as a marker or they reach into their pouch to get a treat and the animal perceives that as a marker. So if you don't want to use a marker, you don't have to, but you're going to find the science has proven to us that the animals are looking for things that indicate when they've done something correctly. They're going to find a marker and they're going to use one anyway. Let me just incorporate the marker into my training so that I'm aware of when my animal perceives something. And so I put it in the, into that, into that system. Um, and I've grown up in that, in that training environment for a long time, but I didn't start there. I, I didn't start as a positive reinforcement trainer. I began my career working with guide dogs and we uh, didn't just use positive reinforcement. We all we used plenty of positive reinforcement, but we also used a number of aversives. We I think we called them corrections at the time. And we we disciplined the animal when they did something that was incorrect because we felt it was really important to let them know when they made an error. And I think that for me, my movement away from the use of aversives really happened because of my work in a zoological environment. You, you tend to find, and I worked early in my career in a free contact environment with tigers, with, uh, killer whales with other animals where there was no protection. And what you quickly find when you work with those animals is that if you say no or give a time out to one of those animals, it may be the last thing you do. They don't take <laughs> kindly to, to punishment. And so you very quickly learn that if you're going to gain the trust of this exotic animal, you really can't afford to say no. You can't afford to punish. They're all bigger and stronger than you are. Um, and so what, what ends up happening is you find other ways of communicating and other ways of getting your results and you end up moving into this positive reinforcement world. So that by the time I moved back into the dog world, I said, wow, now that I've worked with gorillas and elephants and tigers and killer whales and other large animals, and I have seen the risks, the real risks, I mean the fatal risks of using uh, punishers and seeing how frustrated animals get when they were being punished and how often that would turn them on you and want that they would want to, to retaliate, I realized, well, just because dogs are small and because I'm bigger and I can get away with using a punisher doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't mean that the animal appreciates it. And I see the deterioration in trust that happens. And so for me, I know this all started with you asking a question about clicker training and I've gone off on a terrible tangent. Oh, this is great. Me, I think what you're saying is very important, especially for people out there that are still challenging their animals and trying to dominate their animals. I, I mentioned this on a podcast the other day. I still hear veterinarians say, oh, you need to alpha roll your puppy. And I'm like, 
ah, stop. I understand that we haven't quite caught up, but no, I think what you're saying is incredibly important and you're right. That really brings it to scale. If you challenge a dog or push a dog or force a dog into something or punish a dog, that's one thing. Now imagine your dog is the size of a tiger. Completely different story. It is. It is a different story. And and the reason we got there from your original question is that when people ask, what does it mean to be a clicker trainer? To me, Clicker training is just another way of saying I'm a positive reinforcement trainer who believes in marking behavior in some way. It doesn't have to be with the clicker. But for me, the more important part of being a clicker trainer is being a positive reinforcement trainer. Yes, and specifically using using those markers. I think that's important. I um, I'll tell you two of the things that I do recommend clicker training for because again i'm not very good with it myself i'm not well versed in it just because of my own practices and habits throughout the years but um, i often recommend it for small dog owners i see that timing can be very off when they're trying to teach new skills so that timing of that reward to be that specific moment that you're trying to mark as the actual behavior that you want you know because puppies are moving a mile a minute and have the attention span of a gnat so oftentimes i'll recommend that for small dogs or puppies Um, Because that way it helps build in that immediate reward system to where if you're not fast enough to get all the way down to the ground to your little Yorkshire Terrier, whereas a Rhodesian Ridgeback, you're right there by their face kind of thing, that can can make a difference. And then the other thing I do too, and, and you mentioned a little bit about this, is we tend to way over talk to animals. And I find this very common in pet parents. They're very social and outgoing people. And they're the same with their dogs too, but their dog has no idea what they're saying. So for those people, I'm often like, shh, here take this (laughs) and this is what you're going to use to say good. And this is all the communication you're going to give for the next two lessons. Ready? So it's always kind of presenting a fun new challenge in a game to give them a different way of thinking. Like how can I mark these behaviors that I want to see repeated in the animals that I'm working with? And that's, that's that's the real advantage to the clicker is that it's sort of unique to your environment. There's nothing else that really sounds like that in most people's world. And so it stands out. It means good. But there are so many other ways that you can mark behavior. I'm not I'm not a stickler for suggesting that people have to use a clicker. I find it very, very valuable uh, in many ways. But I also find other substitutes could be just as helpful. Yeah, and it's really building in that cooperation because you're using a lot of yeses, you know, and, and, and I do find not to compare humans and animals a lot, but I find the same in children in children and in dogs, where if it's a lot of no, 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 that's not what I want. It's not what I want. And it's very corrective. You get this kind of sense of hopelessness and they have no idea what to do. So I do feel like in using markers or clicker training specifically that you're giving them a lot of yes, that's what I want. Yes, this. So a lot of positive guidance as far as what it is that you're looking for so they don't end up completely confused. And I think that's one thing that for sure clicker and marker training can help with that really builds that cooperation with with the animal that you're working with. And, And it's building that relationship and much more clear understanding as far as what your expectations are when you give them those yeses in the right direction. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the correlation between teaching children or working with employees or coaching a sporting team, sports team are very similar. They're, 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 the, the principles are universal. And, and we as people respond very well to positive reinforcement, just like our animals do. It's just that positive reinforcement may come in a different form, but it's certainly still very, very powerful. For sure. So you mentioned that you started off working with guide dogs. Is that right? That's correct. Training service dogs? 
That's yep. awesome. I um, I do uh, psychiatric service dogs, a little bit different than the guide dogs, but um, absolutely love it. It's so rewarding. And that um, brings up something that I love talking about because people don't realize this if they're not familiar with the service dog training world, um, the, the concept of intelligent disobedience. Mm-hmm. So I wanted you to speak on that just a little bit and kind of just give us a, your, your spiel on what that looks like and what that is and how that's helpful and why it's important. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it was a concept that I was introduced to really early in my career because I worked with, uh, with guide dogs for the visually impaired. And, um, and it's, it's the concept that really prompted my interest in training. When training a guide dog, for example, we train our dogs to be very, very obedient, very reliable. They, you need a guide dog not to take a, a, a blind person into a, into traffic or to, bump into a trash can or go down a staircase without being aware that that's where they are. And so the dogs are trained very, very precisely to guide their handler through life. Um, but there are there there comes times when, and the best example of this is uh, overhanging obstacles that they may come into contact with you, a, a low hanging sign, a clothesline, a ladder off the back of a pickup truck, there are many things that might impede uh, a blind handler from being able to proceed forward. And, um, and so the dogs have to learn how to read that environment. And when their owner, when they stop because there's a ladder out the back of a pickup truck and the dog stops them, the owner will often is taught to feel with their feet because they often think they're coming to a curb or a, or a, or a step down or something and they feel for it and they don't find it. And so they'll talk to their dog and they'll say, go forward. And the dog needs to understand that although 95% of the time, my, your guidance, you, when you tell me to go, I am supposed to listen, but in those occasions when there is something that presents a danger to you, I am supposed to disobey. As a dog, I am supposed to go, this is a situation in which I am not going to comply with your request to move forward because I can see that there is something that is going to get in your way. And that is a difficult thing for a dog to learn. When you're asking a dog, you are to be reliable and compliant 95% of the time. But on these on these certain occasions, you should disobey and not move forward. Uh, and the reason I use the ladder sticking out of the back of a pickup truck, because it's a really great example. Most people can understand that a dog might easily not walk into traffic because he doesn't want to get hit himself. But often when it comes to overhead obstacles, those overhead obstacles are way above the dog's head and the dog can very easily pass right underneath them. There is no detriment to the dog doing that, but it has to recognize, even though it may have never seen a ladder out of the back of a pickup truck before, it may have never seen a clothesline in a certain situation or a sign that's really low that the, the, the owner's going to hit their head. He has to recognize something that he's never perhaps seen before and say and indicate to their owner, no, I'm not going to do this. I refuse to do this. And that is what we call intelligent disobedience. Learning the environmental cues to be able to determine when 
a cue is a good cue and when a cue is a bad cue or a cue not to follow. And and that can be complicated for a dog. And I remember when I was a young trainer and I saw the way the dog learned this and was able to drink their environment in and recognize the cues to say, no, I'm not going to do this behavior. I fell in love with training. I, I realized what a remarkable thing. And for me as a young kid, I was in high school when I was volunteering for the guide dog school. I remember thinking to myself, what better job is there in the world than to play with dogs all day long, but then to be training them for this noble purpose. And so I'd, in my head, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a guide dog trainer. And so I started kind of channeling my career in that direction. Interestingly enough, though, that's not where my career took me. I ended up in the zoological environment. And some 30 years later, I came full circle and am back doing consulting work with guide dog schools that are trying to move to positive reinforcement training. So it's 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 been a very satisfying a uh, full circle experience for me to be back in the guide dog world. I do a lot of work with guide dogs today, uh, but that's where I started. But at the time I was a high school kid, here I am much older, much more experienced now, but I'm back in that that world. And, and, and it was that idea of the intelligent disobedience that just blew my mind that a, that, that a dog could learn, yes, I will obey you all the time, except under these conditions. And then I'm going to say no. And, and I was really fascinated by that. Yeah, I am as well. And I, and I think it's such an excellent point to bring to light how specialized these animals are, how small of a portion of the population these are. These are not the same as average companion animals that they see a squirrel and they're off and running. Like you have to be able to count on these animals under some pretty interesting circumstances to be able to independently think and carry that thought out to do the right thing at that moment in time. That's a lot for a dog. It's a lot to train in as well. It is a lot for a dog. And, and you brought up another really big obstacle for guide dogs. And that is that what a lot of us in the, in the field refer to as impulse control. You know, uh, those guide dogs are hardwired the same way every other dog is. And their natural impulse would be to chase after that squirrel. But learning to be a guide dog and, and passing the guide dog test and becoming a guide dog a uh, true guide dog, you have to be one of those dogs that understands with, oh, I see that squirrel, but I got to stay on task and I'm not going to go after it. And that's a, that's a, that's another difficult thing to, to teach the animals. And that's, that's an area that requires a lot of work. And that's one of the hardest things. It's one of the, the last pieces of the puzzle as guide dogs are trained there. There's, there's easy tasks, there's more difficult tasks. And one of the hardest is the, is that idea of impulse control and not, not chasing after that that running squirrel even though you really want to that's right well and i i like too that you're providing this information you've come full full circle because like you i started off training completely different my idea of animal behavior growing up was i say you do <laughs> you're not not very relationship oriented right so i've done a ton of learning my practice as well but the one thing in particular i have to say about service animals as opposed to companion animals is that forcing them into something that they're not naturally good at. You know, you're forcing a response that isn't innate um, or, or, you know, they're not really 
designed, um, just genetically speaking or environmentally speaking, to respond the way you're asking them to respond. So forcing them to do so can really suppress some behaviors that when you put them in a working environment can explode. So I feel like moving in this direction of really, again, giving those yeses and positive reinforcement allows you to see what the dog is actually going to do on its own, independently thinking in those environments, rather than you really kind of pushing the circle into a square peg, so to speak, or vice versa, rather. Yeah, it's very true that the, so much of the of the world of the dog world that is that is doing guide dog work, service dog work, those kinds of things. Um, in the early years, when I first started, it very much was you are a working dog, you must do these tasks, and we are going to teach them to you. And we're going to be very strict about it, because we don't want you to falter. Um, but as we as the as our learning about how animals work and what makes them um, better learners and better workers, uh, realizing that forcing a dog into something that he isn't really suited to um, is not the best approach. And we actually are finding now, especially now that we've had more than 10 years of, of success, uh, I guess we've been doing positive reinforcement with uh, guide dogs now going on 20 years, but we have a lot of data now. We really are beginning to see um, that there's been a lot of advantages to using positive reinforcement. The most significant is the working life of a positive reinforcemently trained guide dog is sometimes almost a year and a half longer. Um, uh, the average guide dog under normal circumstances has a working life of about five to six years. And we're finding that positive reinforcement trained guide dogs have a working life of seven and a half to eight and a half years. Well, that's a huge difference if you're a, an that's owner. Significant. And it's, it's because the stress level is much lower because you really are teaching the dogs to participate, uh, willingly. Um, and, and, and it's, and it, 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 they're much more, they're working because they love the work. They're working because they like it. They're working because this is something that they enjoy doing as opposed to the dogs in the early years where, okay, I must do this particular job. I'm being forced to do this job. Um, most dogs love to do the work that you're asking them to do. You just need to find the right way to motivate them and find it, make it positive and fun for them. And, and, and they'll do a great, they'll do a great job. I was considerably shocked when I first entered the service dog training world because I'm fairly new to it. We we started our nonprofit program in 2015 and I could not believe that I would actually get comments and emails about, "Oh, this is terrible. You're you're, you know, these dogs are destined to a life of servitude to humans and you're forcing them to work and they just want to be free and be animals." Now, Mind you, it was a small portion of the population that I received this, the, these comments and feedback, but I was like, I, I would always like take such joy in sending them photos and videos of our dogs, like complete goofballs, loving everything they do. And I'm like, does this look like we're forcing these dogs into servitude here? They love their job. They absolutely love it. But it is, it's about finding the right the right animal, you know, that is, is that has that temperament, has that personality to be able to slide into that job, has the intelligence levels, can make those independent decisions when need be. But then also, yeah, making it fun for the dog. Like who wants to be forced into anything? So I do. I find that most service dogs that are actively working really enjoy what they do. They are really connected with their handlers. They're loose. They're having fun. They're wagging their tail. They're looking for that next thing. You know, almost like watching watching a German Shepherd ready for, you know, ready for that release cue to go grab that sleeve. Like, they're ready. You know, they enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
And what a happier life for the dogs overall. Oh, of course. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's the joy in finding that, that, you know, dogs love to do things. I mean, I think the worst thing that can happen, one of the reasons that so many dogs end up in shelters uh, is often because of the fact that owners didn't give them a job to do. They're bored with nothing to do. Their owners have gone off to work and they are, um, they're bored out of their minds. And so they learn to tear up the house and get themselves into trouble. And, and what they really needed was something to occupy them. them. And that's one of the great things about training is it gives them something to do. It doesn't have to be a big, important job, like being a, uh, uh, a guide to dog. It can just be some fun activities, but nonetheless, it, it dogs need that kind of outlet. They need a place to release that energy, that running, jumping, searching, smelling thing, all the things that they love to do. Yeah. So talking about that, like in, in what are some resources that you have for trainers out there or veterinary staff out there that they basically have those owners in front of them. I bought this great Australian shepherd, you know, from this wonderful herding line. Well, I work eight hours a day and he's created half the day and, you know, we go for a little 20 minute walk and he really likes to play with his ball, but he destroys everything in the house, you know, that sort of thing to where you have these working lines. And even if you don't, dogs still need that physical and mental enrichment, that outlet there. But what are some resources for, for people that have that owner in front of them that, that purchased a dog or even adopted a dog from a shelter that's a particular breed that has those drives that needs those jobs, but they bought it because it was cute or it's just a family companion? So you, you ask a great question, Sarah, and I think the way I would respond to it kind of depends upon who the person in front of me is, because I wish I could go back in time sometimes and say, I want to educate people before they go out and buy the dog. I want to educate yes. people before they go out and get Call the dog. Call me first. <laughs> and, I, and I think sometimes that's where I, when I'm talking to veterinary professionals, when I'm talking to trainers, I really push hard on the fact that training is not a luxury it's a key component to good animal care just like somebody would yes. never get a dog without recognizing the need for a veterinarian no one would get a dog without recognizing the need for good nutrition well when you look at the things that are important for a dog's life yes you need good health care yes you need good nutrition yes you need the right environment but you also need a program that includes training and enrichment and it's sadly missing in our world view of, of taking care of pets, uh, that oftentimes training is an afterthought or people think, well, no, I just need a trainer under these conditions. I need a trainer because I'm interested in participating in this really cool sport. So I need a trainer to help me, or I need a trainer because my dog is misbehaving and I need to fix it. But outside of some of those reasons, people don't think of, of a trainer. They, they would they will get a veterinarian. You you go and find a veterinarian even when your dog's not sick. You should go and find a, a, a trainer even when your dog has not got behavioral problems because it is a key component Absolutely. to good health care, to good life of a dog. So if I could go back in time, I would start by saying that's where I want to start is I want to help educate people before they go out and get a dog. Don't be that that huge percentage of the population who get a dog because he's cute and then give up on the dog because he misbehaves because so part of the challenge that we have in our world is that what is socially acceptable to us as humans 
are not the way dogs naturally behave. Dogs naturally like to bark. They naturally like to dig. They naturally like to run. They naturally like to do all these things that we somehow want to get rid of. And so uh, yeah. very, very valuable if, if, if dog owners, cat owners, pet owners would recognize the value of having a trainer as a part of their overall pet care team. So that's my go back in time answer. But if I actually have someone in front of me who, who well, I already have this dog and I didn't realize that now. Um, there are a lot of different books that I often, and courses that I recommend depending upon the case. You know, uh, you look behind me, I've got my library here and it goes all the way around. I've got a huge, huge library. I'm dying to know all of the books that are on your shelves too. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, they're, they're, I just, the, the library just goes on and on and on, but. I love it. And the, and, the, and the thing is that there's different books that are good for different kinds of owners. You know, um, I, I often find that uh, for some owners, it's getting them a good book on enrichment. Uh, what is enrichment and how they can keep their dog occupied and active. And I will recommend that because it gives them games and things to do with their dog to keep their mind active. Uh, other, if, if I see that it's an owner that has the time to spend with the dog that they might be able to get their dog involved in nose work sports or uh, 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 agility or barn hunt or other things. There's a small percentage of people who have that kind of time, but if they do, then I'll, I'll direct them to those kinds of books. If I see someone who is who is just starting out and they just got a brand new puppy, well, then I'm going to direct them to a good puppy book. You know, I, I, I recommend uh, there's... Uh, Ken, Ken Martin and, and, and Debbie Martin wrote a wonderful book called Puppy Start Right that really helps people start their puppies with a good foundation and helps guide them through raising a puppy of any kind, of any breed. Um, and so there are a variety of resources that, that I recommend, but they are, I try to be very thoughtful in recommending them because clearly I have lots of resources I could recommend, but when you when you when you have an owner talk to you, you say, well, let me, there's 40 books here that I think are great. Well, that's a little overwhelming. Overwhelming. And, <laughs> and, and it's way too much for the average dog owner. So I want to pick one resource. I'll pick either one video or one uh, webinar or one book that I think can really get them off to the right start and recognize the value of training and help them down the path of building that good relationship with their dog, but getting the behavior that they're looking for from their dog. Yeah, I, I, I find that, and I don't know if you find this as well, talk about overwhelming people. I find that the attention span is very short. Like I want this very quick fix. Let me watch a quick video. And I found myself, even in the books that I was recommending, reducing like the page numbers. I went from, you know, using like Dr. Sophia Yin's, she had her Perfect Puppy in Seven Days book. I used to recommend that. Well, that was too much for people to read. So then we went down to like the Learn Earn booklet. And I used to hand those things out like candy. Like here, read this, read this, read this. Just get something on board to help you with some foundational skills because oftentimes they they do miss the fact that training is a prevention kind of like you were talking about you know you you get vaccinations to prevent diseases well you train with your dog with a professional that can help you through that to prevent behavioral disorders and problems in the future and that's really important 
Yeah, and I agree with you that the the average client really is looking for the quick fix, and and there may not always be a quick fix, but I I keep a set of of free YouTube links that I can give to people just if they're interested in, depending on what the problem is, um, because you know it's a big part of being successful as a as a as a trainer is building your client base and finding ways of making what you're trying to teach your client easy and useful and 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 there isn't there isn't a short video that can teach you everything you need to know about training but there are plenty of short videos that might help you if what you're looking for is to get rid of one particular problem or looking for other things and then i always tell trainers if you can develop that resource list of quick youtube videos where you just send your client a link they watch a video and they go oh this is what i gotta do and you're able to provide them a little bit of follow-up to help keep them on the right track then you're going to find that that client will come back to you again and again and again and you you begin building that uh behavioral repertoire in their dogs that is really useful but you just do it in those small pieces as they need it um, more and more uh in my career now i i tend to work primarily with uh with professional trainers and helping professional trainers get the skills so that they can take on other clients uh, and a big part of that is having those quick resources right at the ready so that your clients can get the quick answer they need for the one problem they're looking for because giving them even a small book a hundred page book is too much it's not what they're really wanting to dig into they're not looking to become a professional trainer they just want to know how can i keep my puppy from biting how can i keep my dog from whatever the problem is and so you need to find resources that are quick and easy to get them to that solution and then you begin to build their confidence and their trust in you and you can start working toward whatever it is that you ultimately need and want but it's it's about finding those quick resources yeah and having them on quick draw and i feel like oftentimes with owners that are facing multiple issues it's not throwing all of that information all of those resources at them at once you can think of it like a you know a mailchimp email drip campaign to where you know day one you send this out let them get a little taste a little appetizer okay and then maybe day three we're going to send out the next resource follow up with them and see how they're doing you know see if they have any questions if they've got stuck anywhere but um, I think it's important too, because it, it can be the same as handing them a stack of books if you throw all of those resources at them at once. So just kind of slowly filtering those things out. So in, in uh, mentioning training the trainers, I definitely want to talk about this because you do a lot of teaching when it comes to trainers. I um, listened into your presentation at the Lemonade Conference. That was fantastic. Picked up a lot of information there for my own use with my clients. But um, talk to me a little bit about the coursework that you offer so people that do want to learn more can learn more from you. But also, I'd like to hear about your book, The Eye of the Trainer, if you can tell yeah. me a little bit about that and how that can help trainers in their practice, growing in their practice as well. Sure. Well, when, when it comes to coursework, there's a lot of different different approaches that, 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 that we can take. Um, as the uh, chief training officer for Karen Pryor Clicker Training, we, of course, have our, our, our own curriculum, which is a series of courses through the Karen Pryor Academy. We have everything from really simple things like dog trainer foundations that is for everybody to our dog trainer professional program, which is a certification program and really requires a significant investment of time and money to really go through. But we have lots of different levels of courses that, that can help people 
introduce, we have a train your cat course or a dog trainer foundation course or a, 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 a shelter course. Um, and those are simple courses that you can take to get you started if you're really interested in, in learning. And then another thing that we have here is um, we have the Karen Pryor National Training Center, which is where I actually live in Washington State, uh, where we have a, a, an entire ranch here and we've got goats and donkeys and alpacas and dogs and other animals and people come and take week-long courses with us almost the majority of those courses are really designed for professional trainers although some of the beginner courses very easily a, a, a novice or someone who's just barely starting training could gain a lot from it but we really gear our resources toward professional trainers who want to advance their career who want to learn a specific skill set in greater depth, want to explore, they've been training forever, but want to explore in depth concepts that they haven't really thought about or haven't had to use very much in their career. So those are different approaches that, that we take to uh, to teaching here at Karen Pryor Clicker Training. Um, oh, and you mentioned my book. Uh, uh, my most recent book is, is one called The Eye of the Trainer. It's very different than Back in 1999, I, I published a, a book on animal training that is like 600 pages, and it's one that's used often in the zoological community that just goes through all the different steps for how to build a training program. The new book, though, Eye of the Trainer, is very different. It was, uh, I wrote a lot of articles over the last six or seven years on a variety of topics as I travel, and I travel, well, when it wasn't in the pandemic, I traveled a lot. Um, and I find that there would be common questions that people would ask, everything from how do I get, what is the first thing I need to train if I want to be a trainer? Or the more experienced trainers, there would be these complex tools like uh, uh, jackpots or keep going signals or end of session signals. And and there wasn't any there wasn't anything written about those tools that were really definitive as to, are they a good tool? Are they a bad tool? So I would write these articles sort of giving my opinion and doing a little research and giving some thoughts on those. And then after a few years, um, someone said, gosh, you ought to put all of those articles into a book. And so that's what the eye of the trainer is, is really uh, these random articles. And what's nice about it is it's not a book you have to sit down and read from cover to cover. Uh, you may pick one article in the book, and most of them are two, three, four page articles. They're not, it's not heavy reading, but it, talks very specifically about a very small topic and gives my perspectives on that topic. Um, and so uh, uh, I've been very blessed. It came out uh, just a, about a year ago now. It came out in, in January of 2020. And it, it, it has sold really, really well. It's been a very uh, popular book. And I'm just really pleased that people have found it useful. That's fantastic. Well, you've got a lot of history to go into that. So I like that you took something that was informative and you just, you kind of colored it a bit with, you know, bits and pieces of information that you've learned along the way and what you've learned without, with your, you know, pretty wide array of different experiences with different species to kind of, again, kind of color that in for people to help them better understand the concepts and whether those concepts are something that they should put into their practice or not. What are some of the things that you go over in the book in particular? Well, I think one of the things that I think people seem to find the most interesting are, are stories where I talk about a, a unique situation that I was faced with. Uh, often 
either going down a bad path where I made a mistake, I didn't realize what I was doing and it didn't, the outcome didn't come out the way I wanted it to. Uh, I have found that those stories tend to resonate really, really well with people. Um, the book is sort of divided into eight chapters, which I've grouped the articles into those eight chapters because it, it gives you different things. Like the very first chapter is getting started. And over the course of my career, I've written a number of articles on how to get started with training. Uh, and, and so there's, there's those kinds of articles where they're just quick little tidbits on, on how to begin. And then like I was talking about, about advanced tools, other times I take and dig into a in-depth discussion about an advanced tool like jackpot or like a keep going signal or an end of session signal. And I have a whole section on my thoughts on these different advanced tools. And then there's two chapters of the book that are devoted to people and, and dealing with training and teaching people and the use of positive reinforcement and the various obstacles that I've encountered with that. And then there's other areas where I just tell stories about, um, about some of the unique random things that 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 I, my, I've done in my career. I've been very fortunate that because I began consulting really early in my career, I've been called in on some pretty unique things. And so there's a an article in there about my butterfly training project, which of course, before I was involved in that project, I would have never even considered butterfly training as something that I would add to my resume or some of the conservation. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> some of the conservation work that I've done, and I tell stories there about an elephant migration project where we we're helping retrain elephants to avoid poachers. Um, you know, and so there's, but they're they're all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason for them, and we've we've tried to give them a rhyme and reason by putting them into different chapters. But again, every every article is is about a separate story, and 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 as I said, oftentimes. Uh, some of the ones that resonate most are places where I was overly confident about something and, 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 and I realized that I went down a wrong path and I made a mistake or uh, I believed something about a training principle that turned out that I really didn't understand the principle as well as I thought I did. And so I share those stories of, of where I missed Make, t made a misstep or where I, I didn't understand something quite as well as I thought of. And, and I try to put it into perspective of, of how we as trainers have to stay humble. We have to remind ourselves that we are on a learning journey that will never, ever end. I, I don't care if you have 80 years of experience under your belt and have worked with hundreds of species, you are still going to encounter situations and things that you never experienced before and there's a lot to learn from those experiences and so i i try to draw on that wealth of experience that i've had and the luck that i've had in my career to have been able to work all over the world with such a wide variety of species to to sort of tell these stories so I, I really love that you include that in your book because this, I think the struggles are so important. I feel oftentimes that trainers, behavior professionals, even veterinarians at times feel very isolated in their practice because, you know, social media can be horrible and, you know, there's just really no place for ego in learning and in this practice because as you said, even the term expert makes me kind of go, Oof, you know, because you're, you're always learning in this field. We're talking about living organisms and beings and so, I, I love when trainers and behavior professionals put their struggles out there, work with real clients, real patients, and talk to the 
talk to people about the side of the story that's not always pretty so that they can relate to that as well. There's so much out there on social. I do it this way and these are all my successes and look at me. And um, and I, I love that we're trending away from that. I feel that was that's kind of an old school traditional way of thinking. It's very me, 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 and you can never see my missteps. And if I do misstep, I'm gonna give you an excuse as to why that happened. And especially, you know, you're, you're involved with IABC too. I see in communities like that where those walls are starting to crumble down a bit. Yeah, there can be some heated discussions back and forth because of subjective opinions and experiences. But for the most part, the community is starting to come together and share those experiences to where it's no longer scary to talk to other people and other professionals about those stumbles along the way. Now we can actually learn from other people's experiences and um, feel okay in the mistakes that we're making along the way as well, instead of you know looking to social media and seeing everybody that looks so perfect in every single training video that they post. Yeah, it, it, it's true, and it, 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 it's sad that that I, I don't know that social media is ever going to get us out of the uh, of the anonymous criticism kind of thing that happens, and that's unfortunate. You know, uh, you know little things that you post on social media, uh, something blows up, and someone has decided that they're going to criticize uh, either the way somebody did something, and 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 instead of recognizing that there's beauty and benefit from seeing anything that everybody does and why we f feel we have to be so critical and so aversive in our attacks on each other doesn't make sense to me. I, I do believe the, the community has become much, the camaraderie in our community has become better and better. There's still that vocal group, the, those vocal individuals that will highlight a mistake that they see. Um, and, and, and make a big deal out of it as opposed to uh, um, just letting it go. I mean, why why the need to, to be so critical? I, I, I don't know. But yes, I, I'm, I'm the first one to admit I, I, I go down bad paths all the time. And those are just good learning experiences for me. And that's why I share them because, you know, maybe if someone reads this, they will keep them from making that same mistake. But I realize sometimes we just all have to make our own mistakes, but, but mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, uh, uh, if we didn't make mistakes, we wouldn't keep getting better. We wouldn't be improving ourselves. And, uh, and so I think that, uh, I, I want to be able to model that and, and say, you know, gee, I, uh, you know, even when you, you were right when you talked about experts and being a, being such a, a, a weird word. One of the things I really dislike, even though I do it myself when I when I have people coming to a conference uh, or coming to a class, you'll say, "Tell me what your experience level is. Are you a beginner? Are you intermediate? Are you advanced?" Mm -hmm. And when I get asked that question, I look at it and go. I never say that I'm advanced. I mean, I've been training for over 40 years and yes i've trained lots and lots and lots of animals but somehow always advancing <laughs> we'll put the ing at the yeah, end of that advance <laughs> like a, a very high level to to claim for yourself i i i acknowledge okay maybe i can't say that i'm a beginner anymore because i'm not but i no. i tend to put myself <laughs> in the intermediate level just because i worry that I just feel awkward saying that I'm an advanced trainer. I, 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 yes, I've done a lot of things, but there's just so much more to learn. And so uh, it's a difficult thing, you know, but, but we, 
we always want to put people in these categories. Oh, this is a beginner. This is an intermediate or this is an advanced trainer. And I'm always like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to check advanced. I don't know. So it's a, I'm the same way. I get very cringy about that. I'm like, ah, <laughs> how analytical do we want to be about this right yeah. now? Yeah. And, well, and the hard, I want to circle back around. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just, the hard thing about it is that the word advanced is a very difficult one because what are you talking about? Are you talking about years of experience? You're talking about diversity of species? Are you talking about depth of experience? Because I always, one of the things that I find fascinating as a consultant, when I go in to work with some pretty advanced trainers, often I find that where things have fallen apart is that they have gotten past or forgotten to look back at their basics. And I often like to say, one of my, one of the things that people quote me on all the time is that advanced training is really just the basics done really, 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 really well. Uh, you know, you, you can't forget timing and criteria and reinforcement and all those basic things, no matter how complex your training is, you're always going back to those real basics. And so, uh, to me, being an advanced trainer means you're going back and revisiting the basics and polishing your basics and making them better. So, well, and everything that you've learned from relying on those instincts, whether you use you know clickers or other different types of tools in your practice, um, my my way of thinking in that to expand a little bit is also kind of along those lines to where. Yes, but what can you do without all of that? Use your brain, start with the basics, you know, and then go from there. I, I always love to, to tease new um, veterinary assistants and veterinary technicians, especially in the surgical suite where you have all these monitors, you know, you have your EKG machine and, you know, your capnograph and you're, you're measuring SpO2 and, you know, it tells you your heart rate and everything else that you need to know, your blood pressure. And I love walking up to the surge event and just unplugging it. And the, the animal's out unconscious under anesthesia. I'm like, now what? Don't panic. Just go back to your basics. You know, use your fingers, use touch, use feel, like pay attention to the eye, the eye position. Like how are they breathing? Count your respirations. Listen to the heart. Like don't panic. Like just right. take it back to the basics and then remember who you are. Remember where you started. Remember your practice and then kind of grow from there for the most part. So that's a really good way of putting it. I kind of like that. Yeah. 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 So, um, Growth and adaptation. I was gonna. I was gonna mention this again because I do want to encourage people to take advantage of opportunities like coming out to the ranch that you mentioned and visiting places like this and working with other species just like you do. Even if there's not an interest in that in particular, and I'll let you expand on on the wonderfulness behind um, kind of incorporating everything that you learn in those different environments about different species and how you can apply that to your niche area. But um, I think adaptation is at the top of my list when it comes to that because you have to learn really how to use those basic skills that we just talked about. Like you have to rely on the things that you've learned some of it is gut instinct. Some of it is experience. Some of it is, you know, what you've been taught or learned from other people, kind of like yourself. But um, it really challenges your brain to think in different ways when you're working with a variety of species and you take the time to do that. And I only see benefit to someone's practice, whether they're specifically feline, they're specifically canine, whatever the case may be. So um, what's your kind of thought on that? I mean, do you typically recommend that if I am only ever going to train canines that, okay, just stick to canines. Don't worry about coming out to the ranch, you know, or what's your, what's your yeah. take on that? I mean, yeah, I, I think there's real value in being a specialist. There's nothing wrong with being a, a, a canine trainer or even more specifically a specific sport or whatever there's nothing wrong with that however one of the things that is going to help your skills is 
getting the opportunity to work in areas that you are less comfortable working in. Um, and oftentimes what I find when I have I have so many professionals that come here to the ranch and I purposely when if they're a horse trainer I'm not going to put them on a donkey or a horse I'm going to put them on a goat if they're a dog trainer <laughs> I'm not going to put them on a dog I'm going to assign them because what happens is all of a sudden you become a beginner again and realize oh my goodness I have to rethink what it is to be to, to deal with the basics and what happens is the first two days is like reacquainting yourself with the basics of training because you've got a goat in front of you instead of a dog and realizing how how differently you have to do things but then usually at the by the middle of day two the end of day two all of a sudden it's like oh my goodness this is getting easier and now you're realizing wow these little things like placement of reinforcement or uh timing of, of 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 delivery of a reinforcer or the cleanliness of your cues all of a sudden becomes more apparent to you because you're s suddenly watching an animal that you don't know very much about and you can't just rely on oh i've done i worked with dogs for 30 years so i'm going to look for that oh i can't look for that because this isn't a dog and it just makes you more aware of the things that you have to observe the basics that perhaps you've taken for granted and it really helps a reinvigorate your training helps you look at your training from a new perspective and with to a person i've never had somebody who afterwards said well that was a stupid thing you made me do by making me work with a species that i didn't know they're usually very very grateful and realize how much it has improved their training and so even if i know a person is only ever going to work with dogs they're not going to work with my dogs. They're going to work with my goats or my alpacas because I think they will discover just these this rich uh, uh, number of things that they become more aware of. They become more aware of observing body language. They become more aware of basics that they knew were important, but they just sort of put in the back of their head. But now they're having to think about them a lot because they have an animal in front of them that they're not as familiar with. And so uh, I've always been a, a strong proponent of, of teaching people to work with other species. And when I set the ranch up, I expected that probably a, a good 60 to 70% of the people that would come here would probably be dog professionals. Uh, but I have all these other species because I think they, it can really help people learn a lot. So I'm, and I, because I came from a zoological environment where we worked with lots of different species, um, I saw the value in that. I saw how much how much more I, I, I'm very re reluctant to take anything for granted because I realize that as I work with different species, I have to think about things in different ways. So I, I find Yeah, you really... kind of have to rely on those raw instincts. You know, it's like a brand new relationship. You have no idea what to expect and you're kind of starting from scratch. I think it's really good for critical thinking skills in particular, which Oftentimes, if you're dealing with any sort of difficult, advanced cases, that you you really need to rely on that characteristic in yourself to be able to handle those situations. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's so it's so key. And and you know, I'm always I'm always surprised by you know by but I I myself find myself falling into that same surprising pattern where someone will come forward and ask for help working with a particular species, and 
I will be very upfront and say, gosh, I don't have experience with that species. As long as you can pair me with somebody who knows the species and can give me that species specific information that I need, uh, I'm, I'm confident enough in my training to know, feel like I can, I can probably, uh, help them as long as, as long as we understand that I'm coming in with zero knowledge about the species. I, that's, that's what happened to me with my butterfly project. Um, they had been wanting to train butterflies. They were, they were doing a gala presentation. This was in London and they wanted to have 10,000 butterflies fly across this soccer stadium while the <laughs> London Philharmonic was playing this orchestral <laughs> piece. And everybody they asked about training butterflies said, I, I don't know anything about training butterflies, but you know who you should call? You should call this guy in the US. His name is Ken Ramirez. And I think it's because in my 20 years of teaching at Western Illinois University, one of the things I always told my students is, uh, that whether you're training a an earthworm or a Harvard graduate, we all learn the same way. And so I think people thought, well, Ken claims he can train an earthworm. I imagine he can probably train a butterfly. So <laughs> my name kept coming up. And so they contacted me and asked if I was interested in participating in this project. And, you know, I was very excited about it. And I, I ended up saying, yes, I'll, I, I'd love to participate in the project. And I, I remember distinctly, I hung up the phone and went, oh, my God. I don't, I don't know anything about butterflies. I mean, I don't know. I need an what, entomologist stat. <laughs> what do they eat? How do you cue them? Do they hear? Can they see? I don't know. I know nothing about them. They're, they're pretty and they fly. I mean, I didn't know, but I, I felt confident enough in my knowledge. And so once we got into the project, I think the, the piece of information that I didn't have that I wished I'd had at the beginning though, was not realizing that the life expectancy for many species of butterflies is six weeks. And so we, we, we were on this training project where we needed several months to get these butterflies ready for this thing. And I realized, <clears throat> you mean some of these butterflies that we're training won't even be alive when it's time for this thing? They said, no, they won't be around anymore. Um, and I realized well, there, there was a piece of information I wished I had, but the reality was many species of butterflies do live longer and we were able to train the butterflies and, and everybody's always amazed by this butterfly training project. But when it's all said and done, all we were teaching them to do is on cue to fly from point A to point B. It's no different than when you teach your dog to come to you and they come from where they are to you. It's a very simple behavior, but because it was a butterfly or because it was a group of butterflies and it was 10,000 butterflies, it seemed like some phenomenal training task, but it was really only phenomenal in the sense that it was not a species that most people had worked with before. But yeah, I, it's, it's completely new territory. Yeah, and once I had my, my butterfly biologists, there were two of them that were on our team, I was set, you know, I, I devised the training plan. They told me, no, this won't work, or they don't eat that, or you can't do it this way. And we figured it out and ended up making it work. And we got the full flight across the stadium Took us 19 days, a little longer than I expected, wow. but it was, you know, it was a pretty short training period. Okay, I got to know because butterflies can it can be attracted to some pretty nasty stuff. What was your reinforcer? We used three different reinforcers. We ended up breaking our group of butterflies into three different groups. We had three to four thousand uh, butterflies in each group. For one of them, wow. we used 
uh, pure nectar. For others, we used fruit. And for others, there is a packaged butterfly food solution that, that they make for people who want to attract butterflies to their backyard. It's a powder that you mix with water and it, it's a sugary solution that butterflies love. Oh. And they, they, they came to it. They liked it. I can see people booking you for like extravagant weddings and <laughs> huge galas. And <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do very many more butterfly training projects, but yeah, it was, it was really quite remarkable. I'm not going to start doing it? events on the side. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I would totally hire for you that. That would be pretty impressive. <laughs> I would think. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, Ken, this has been packed full of information and I, I really appreciate the time that you've taken with me today. Um, I definitely want to leave everyone that's listening with some information about what you're up to this year and how they can learn from you more. Obviously, you have some courses available through Karen Pryor Academy. They can come out to the ranch and kind of do that. Hopefully, are, are you guys still doing that during COVID right now? Just limited no, or? We, uh, we, we closed down for COVID in March of 2020, but we will be open again in June. Uh, no matter what's going on okay. with COVID, we have a number of safety procedures we can put in place. We're not doing anything during the winter months, but uh, during the summer, if we're still in the middle of COVID, we are. We have an outside tent, an open air tent that we will be teaching the classes and we'll go out and work with the animals. And we keep the people in the class are a relatively small number of participants. So it's easy for us to social distance. So yes, through Karen Pryor Academy, we have online courses that people can take. Uh, and for people who are interested in learning in person and training animals at the ranch and learning from us here, they can certainly come here starting in June and we will be open again uh, uh, now, that the pan now that we've understood how to work within the pandemic, uh, we'll be open in June and be offering courses June, July, August, September this year. Perfect, any conferences for this year? I am speaking at a lot of conferences so far. All of them are um, virtual conferences. I am speaking <laughs> yes. at IAABC this year. I am speaking at uh, uh, a Shelter Playgroup Alliance conference this year. I'm speaking at uh, uh, Nordic Assembly conference this year. And I'm speaking at uh, a conference in Montreal. I'm, speak I'm speaking at quite a few conferences. I'm looking forward to when those conferences will be in person. Oh, I'm speaking at APDT. I'm a keynote speaker at APDT this year. And Excellent. I just got they're going to be virtual as well. So, um, oh, you got so... the email before I did. You're in the loop. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, that's at least what I've what, what I my understanding is it's 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 virtual. So, um, I'm looking forward to being able to get out and actually see people in person again. That's nice. the hard thing, you know. Uh, uh, virtual conferences are great. Uh, and you get people talking to you in the chat window. But boy, being able to look out and watch someone smile and nod or even seeing somebody falling asleep and you don't you know you don't have their attention. <laughs> seeing that live feedback is is really, really uh, valuable. Um, I'm glad to see that we can still continue learning virtually. Uh, there's no question that it's a very valuable way to learn. But boy, I look forward to being able to go back to conferences and, and teaching sessions in person again. So I'm looking forward to that. Great. Yeah, I do as well. I will say the one the one positive silver lining piece from um, everything moving virtual is that, you know, I was so worried for some of the organizations that are putting these on that they would see a decline in participation and they've seen an increase in participation. Yeah. They've been able to get more people, you know, just because they're not traveling. But I couldn't agree with you more. I'm, I'm When it's safe, I'm very much looking forward to being back in person. It's just a, a different learning environment altogether and not being distracted by everything in your home or your office or wherever you are. 
So, well, all right, well, I am going to put, go ahead. Yeah. No, I just, I imagine um, that now that we've opened that bottle and learned about virtual teaching and virtual conferences, I don't know that, that we'll ever get away from them. I think they will always be a part of our, of our experience. So uh, I'm looking forward to virtual and in-person events in the future. At least that's what I hope. Yes, a good hybrid, for sure. A good hybrid would be great for people that can't travel but can still participate. And yeah, I like that idea a lot. That's a good way to do it. They're going to be calling you for some organizational committees after after listening to this, I have a feeling. <laughs> so tell us how to do this, Ken. You can fly butterflies <laughs> across the stadium. You can help us organize a hybrid conference, right? I, I um, try. Well, I'm going to put a link to your book in the description, in the show notes, so everybody can access that and grab a copy. I'm definitely looking forward to reading that. It sounds very adventurous as, a, as, as opposed to your typical kind of training, very informative. So I'm, I'm very excited about reading that. I'll put a link in the description. Also put a link to your website, clickertraining.com and the ranch.clickertraining.com so that people can find you there, sign up for those courses. And then in June, when you guys start rolling back in with in-person stuff, um, people can can learn from your experiences. Uh, you can find Ken on Instagram. I do follow him, and I love love seeing all of his posts because he gets to work with all of the fun animals that I only dream about working with most of the time. So, Ken, I look Thank forward you. to visiting you out at the ranch sometime soon. And um, feel free to pop in every once in a while in case there's some questions that people put in the show notes that uh, I right. can't answer because I'm not okay. you. <laughs> so, thank you. Thanks Sarah. so much, and. Look forward to hearing from you at uh, several of the upcoming conferences. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.